we're in the book of Daniel, we're in chapter 7, verse 15 through 28. If you would, stand for reading of God's word. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all of this, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts which are four are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. And I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces, trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, before, before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings, who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first one, and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, and shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law, and the saints shall be given into his hand, for time and times and half a time. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion, consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. This kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, and I kept the matter in my heart. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Daniel's visions interpreted so that we cannot miss exactly what is coming in the future. This is so that we know. So the theme of Daniel, you should have this by now. Everybody should get an A on this. The sovereignty of God over nations, over rulers, and over your life. God is sovereign. Last week we talked about two visions. They actually are visions number three and number four in chapter seven. Uh, vision number three was the throne of God. The Ancient of Days was presiding on the throne. It was an ominous picture of judgment. Ten thousands times ten thousands were standing before him. And the judgments and the seats were set. And the court was set. This is a fearful thing. And we know that the first one judge will be the Antichrist in, in uh, 7.11, Daniel 7, verse 11. But we also know with the Antichrist, simultaneously in Revelation, we see the false prophet is also judged. And they are thrown into the lake of fire, which they will be there forever. Satan is going to be judged, and he'll be thrown into the pit, the abuso. But it'll be only for a thousand years. He'll be loosed for a short period of time to deceive the nations, and then he will join the Antichrist and the false prophet in the lake of fire. And those 10,000 times 10,000 that were judged, whose names were not written in the book of life, ended up in Hades, separated from God in torment for a time. That was not their permanent abode. That's their temporary abode until the great white throne judgment, when they will be found wanting, their books will be open, those who aren't written in the book of life, they will be in the lake of fire forever. So that's the picture, one of judgment. Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back as reign as king, and he'll be judge of this earth. Vision number four 
Jesus is going to be receiving his kingdom. We saw that in verse 13. He was brought near to the Ancient of Days. And we wonder, why was he brought near to the Ancients of Days? And we got a more complete picture in Revelation chapter 5, verse 7. He's coming to receive a scroll out of the hand of Father, sitting on the throne. And that scroll, if you remember, was a deed to planet Earth. It was written on the back and on the front. It was a deed of judgment. And that these are the seal and trumpet and bowl judgments that we see in Revelation 6 through 19. And each time he takes off one of those seals, information is given. And we see that through those rest of those chapters, things that are going to be happening in sequence. Now, I want you to know something. I didn't cover this last time, but I think it's important that you know this, at least in the review, that Jesus is what is known as our kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer. The word in Hebrew is goel, and it means this. In rabbinical tradition, it denotes a person who is the nearest relative of another and is charged with the duty of restoring the rights of another and avenging his wrongs. Now, who is Jesus? Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. What is he redeeming? Well, he's redeeming planet Earth, and he's redeeming each one of us who receive him as Savior, okay, because of Adam's sin. Remember, Adam's sin was imputed to each one of us. So the kinsman redeemer is going to purchase us back with his blood on the cross. That is the picture here. So Adam, now I want you to realize, as our kinsman redeemer, only Jesus fits the role of a kinsman redeemer. See, Adam was the only sinless man that ever lived. Adam and Eve, they were the only sinless humans that ever lived. It required a sinless human to redeem what was lost. And only Jesus Christ, the God-man, fit that role. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, he's called the last Adam. He's the only one that could pay the price. No great angel, no cherubim, no seraphim, no archangel would suffice. It had to be a human, and it had to be the Son of God. All world religions, all of them, excluding none, do not have a Redeemer. Islam does not have a Redeemer. Hinduism does not have a Redeemer. Buddhism does not have a Redeemer. All world religions fall short and are false ways to God. Even though our country and our world is embracing multiple ways to God and approach God your own way, that is a lie. That is false. And you can see by what I've just said, only Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. Only Christianity can be true because of that. So that's important. Also, Jesus is our kinsman avenger. And what does that mean? If someone takes someone else's life in the Old Testament, a family member would then take that person's life. Now remember what happened. When Satan came, sin came into the world, and with sin came the awfulness of death. The awfulness of death. So Satan is the murderer. He's the picture of the murderer. And Jesus is going to be our kinsman avenger. He's going to avenge what Satan has murdered, all of humanity. That's going to happen and be fulfilled in the tribulation period. He's going to deal with the Antichrist. Remember John 8, 44, it says this, You belong to your father, the devil. He's talking to the Pharisees, the religious elites. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, from the beginning, not holding to the truth because there's no truth in him. Now look at he was a murderer. How did he murder? He brought sin into the world and death to each one of us. That's the murder that occurred. Hebrews 2.14 says this, Jesus' death 
destroyed him who had the power of death. That was the devil. See, the devil brought sin into the world. The devil can't just come and take your life willy-nilly. It's not talking about that. It's talking about sin coming into the world and death through sin, and death passed upon all men because all have sinned. That's what it's talking about. Jesus came as our kinsman avenger to avenge the results of sin, that being death. Jesus receives the scroll to planet Earth. He's going to judge Satan, Antichrist, the false prophets, and all humans that follow him. He's going to be the avenger of blood for every believer that ever has received Jesus Christ as Savior. And listen to this. Finally, after he's the avenger of blood, we know that we know that Jesus Christ will return and establish his kingdom of which we will be part of, and he will rule for a thousand years, and then we'll go into what is called the eternal state. What an amazing thing that we have to look forward to. Reigning with Jesus Christ. What a privilege. That's going to be expanded on more in just a second. So this week, Daniel's vision is interpreted. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful that you sent your Son to redeem us from the curse of sin and death. And I thank you so much that you made salvation so easy that whoever believes in you and receives the free gift of salvation will live eternally with you. And Lord, I pray that is the state of every person here today. And if it's not, oh Lord, make it so. Convict hearts. Speak to us today from your word things that you want us to hear. And Lord, I just ask you to over this whole group that help us to set aside whatever we're thinking about on the outside for just a few minutes and to focus exclusively on what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 15 through 18. The vision grieves Daniel. The vision grieves Daniel. Watch this. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body. This was not a happy time for Daniel. And the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by, thinking that's an angel, and asked him the truth of all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. So phase one of the interpretation, verse 17. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. And just remember this. The word saints is usually reserved for in the New Testament. This is being extrapolated. This is being pushed forward to looking at those who believe in Jesus Messiah. Then I wished to know the truth about the fourth beast, the worst one of all, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces, trampled the residue with its feet. Nasty Rome. And the ten horns which were on its head, and the other horn, the Antichrist, which came up before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth, which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. The vision grieves Daniel. So the visions and dreams. We have a lot about visions and dreams today. I mention this frequently because I think a lot of people are really off on what visions and dreams are. Think about this. Many times visions and dreams are disturbing. Visions and dreams are unpleasant. Look at Daniel. Every time he has one, he's sick. He's sick. He can't hardly stand it. It isn't like people get visions today and write a book, you know, go on tour, 
This is what I saw. Peter, Peter, when he had a vision in Acts chapter 10, when the Gentiles were going to be included into the church, and the sheet comes down, you can eat all this food, and Peter goes, oh, no, I can't eat that. That's not kosher. That's not clean. That's unclean. And God says, oh, no, what I have made clean is clean. He had a disturbing vision. He wasn't so excited about the Gentiles being included into the church, but God was. And aren't you glad of that? Yes, I'm glad of that. Also, time, sometimes the, the dreams and visions are warnings. And we saw Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4. When the tree was cut down, don't be arrogant, Nebuchadnezzar. Don't be arrogant. He ends up grazing for seven seasons. We also know that sometimes they encourage. Abraham, in Genesis 15.4, was encouraged with a, with a vision that he's going to have a son. And through that son would come Messiah. And sometimes they direct. Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia. Paul wanted to go into, into Asia. He wanted to go into Bithynia. He did not want to go into Macedonia. And God says, yes, that's where you're going. Sometimes they direct where you're to go. But hear this. All the time, all the time, visions have a purpose. They are important. They are not trivial. They're not there for your entertainment. They are exceedingly important. And I want to suggest to you, based on Acts chapter 2, verse 17 through 21, Peter is going to expound on Joel's prophecy about the Holy Spirit being poured out upon all flesh. Men, women, children, all flesh, which is very different than in the Old Testament. And your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. And as we get closer to the tribulation, I think these things increase. And what you see in our world today is an increase in visions and dreams in people groups that have not had access to Messiah like we do. See, we don't get them so much here because what do we have? We have the Word of God. We have it in every corner. We have churches all over the place. Most of them not preaching the Word, by the way. But we have churches. We have access to information here that most of the world doesn't have. So God is going to call out a people. Nothing will stop our God. And we learned last time that there are visions and dreams that are increasing in, in Indonesia, in Iran in particular, that in 1994, there were estimated to be 100,000 Christians in Iran. Today, through dreams and visions and a miracle of God, there are over 3 million Iranian believers. That is God at work. Daniel sees this vision, and Daniel is grieved in his spirit. It means pierced in his spirit. He's disturbed, troubled, terrified. And he wants to know more. And God, in his grace, uses an angel to explain more to him, to elucidate, to make clear. I, verse 16, I came near to one of those who stood by. An angel explains the vision. In verse 17, angel gives a recap about the four beasts, our four kings. And you know by now who those four kings now. It should just rattle right off your tongue. Babylon, Persia. What's the next one? Greece. The next one. Rome, oh good, good, good job class. Yes, good job class. These are Gentile kings, four beasts. These four beasts will trot it down Israel until Jesus comes back. Why is this happening, Israel? Why are these beasts, why are they being trotted down? Why do these first four Gentile empires arise? And I can tell you it was because of Israel's idolatry. They worshiped the gods of the culture, instead of worshiping the God of heaven. They worship false gods. Isn't it astounding how many people will turn to worship false gods and say they don't want anything to do with Jesus, they don't want anything to do with the real Jehovah, and take all of these inferior substitutes. 
all over the place where people do this. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. In verse 18, we saw this, but the saints of the Most High shall receive their kingdom. Now, who are the saints? Well, we know that saints are holy ones, and they receive the kingdom. These are believers, both Jew and Gentile, throughout time. And the, and the Most High gives the kingdom. I want you to watch this. The saints receive, receive the kingdom. They possess the kingdom. The Son of Man, Jesus, will receive the kingdom from the Father and then give it to we who are believers. That's an amazing thing to think about. Christ is King. And we have the privilege of reigning under him. And all I can say is, wow. Wow. Hopefully you're feeling the immense importance of this. This is real. This isn't some fantasy. This is going to happen. This is going to happen as real as you're sitting here. It is going to happen. Christ is king, and we have the privilege of reigning under him. In verse 27, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. In other words, you're not going to become a god and have your own world, as some believe erroneously. Okay? In Revelation 5.10, he made us kings and priests. Kings as rulers, priests as intercessors. And what is amazing, what is glorious, is, is a glorious future that we have. And again, we have no idea what is waiting us. Those who have passed know. You know, it says in Psalms that, Precious in the sight of God is the passing of one of his saints. And we were at Maranatha listening to a, a, an old Bible expositor, and he mentioned that verse. And he said, if we had any idea what was waiting for us, the, the word is timios in the Greek, and I don't know what the Hebrew is. It's precious in the sight of God, pure, great, and wonderful. He said, if we knew how great it was, we'd be jumping in front of Greyhound buses. <laughs> And everybody laughs just like that, you know. And he says, I'm just kidding, not to kill ourselves. But the exit from here is going to be so wonderful compared to being here. Remember that when a loved one passes who's in Christ. That is their greatest, greatest moment of their existence. They just beat us by just a little bit. Because we're all just a little bit behind. We're going to catch up. Have no fear of that. Remember in 1 Corinthians... 2.9, I have not seen nor ear heard nor has entered the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. He's prepared it for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. If we're not so, I would have told you so. And I go to prepare a place for you. Put your name there. For you. That's how special you are. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says this, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, when he comes for us, whether in the rapture of the church or whether he comes for you to put you to sleep, because I can tell you, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that Jesus Christ puts you to sleep and takes you, is involved in that process of you going to Father's house. What a picture. When he is revealed, we shall be like him. Isn't that an amazing gift? I'm going to be more like Jesus. That is an astounding thing. When I look at me and I look at Jesus, there isn't just a little gap. How big a gap is there? You can't even measure it. You can't, well, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. What a promise. Daniel's visions are exciting, and it's future, and it's coming. 
In 19 through 22, Daniel wants to know more about the fourth beast. I'll read it again. Then I wish to know about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces, trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns were on its head. And the other horn, which came up before him, three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until the Ancient of Days came. And a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, yea. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Daniel wants to know more, and he's given more information. Again, the fourth beast is the most troubling, and by now we should know that the fourth beast is Rome. Rome. Rome continues to today and will eventually become ten kingdoms with ten kings. It will be dreadful. It's iron teeth, nails of bronze. It's a nasty-looking thing. And remember, Rome in its grandeur was awful. How you picture Rome with the little hat and they had the little skirts and they had the swords and that sort of That was awful, okay? But nothing compared to Rome future with the Antichrist ruling. See, it was awful. It was terrible. When Antichrist come, it'll be unreal. I wanted to give you a picture of the ten toes. And this is a nasty-looking picture. These are some nasty-looking toes because these are some nasty-looking kingdoms. I look for the nastiest-looking thing you could find. <laughs> because these kingdoms aren't supposed to be glorious. They're wonderful. These are in opposition to Jesus Christ. Antichrist will eventually take over this kingdom. And notice that they're part iron and part clay. And they won't even mix together in their nastiness. They won't even mix together. And it'll be a setup for Antichrist to take over. Now remember, the ten horns are ten kingdoms. And I'll mention it again. A horn in the animal kingdom depicted power. A rhinoceros has a giant horn. You see two, two bucks in the, in the woods. And they start to fight. How do they fight? They put their heads down, and they ram horns together. How do the does fight? You ever see the does fight? They get up on their back feet, and they, they got little alligator arms. You know, Big difference. The horns are emblematic of power, and the Antichrist starts again as a little horn or a little power, and then ascends to power. It's just a good thing to remember. The other horn was the Antichrist, and he came up as a little one, and he subdued. Three of the kings, three of the horns fell, subdued by Antichrist. When Antichrist gains exclusive power, his focus of attack will be the tribulation saints, all true believers. But I want to submit to you something. His pinpoint focus of attack is going to be the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel. What is the focal point of his attack? The nation of Israel. And you're going to ask yourself, why? And if you've been with us for a long time, you know why. And if you haven't, now you'll know why. Will you please turn with me to Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. The scene is heaven. The scene is Satan and his angels fighting against Michael and his angels. So it's the bad guys against the good guys. Pick it up in verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? 
Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. You're going to learn in a few seconds who the dragon is. And the dragon and his angels fought, but did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon, tells you who he is, is Satan, was cast out. The serpent of old called the devil, who's the accuser of the brethren. Remember, he's accusing you night and day before the throne of God. And Satan, the adversary of God and our adversary, who deceives, notice he deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. This is a monumental, exciting moment for the residents of heaven. In the next verses, watch this. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren. You accused them before our God day and night has been cast out. And they overcame him by the, notice how you're going to be an overcomer, by the blood of the lamb, the word of their testimony, and did not love their lives. How important is your testimony? Using your words in this culture to tell others the truth about Jesus Christ. It's the only way, it's one of the three things that allows us to overcome the devil, the adversary, the accuser of the brethren. Therefore rejoice, O heaven. This is the posture of heaven. Hip, hip, hooray, Satan is out. And you who dwell in them. But woe to the inhabitants of the earth. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows his time is short. Folks, this is, I believe this is happening in the middle of the tribulation. I believe this happens when Antichrist sets himself up in the temple to be worshipped as God. And Satan at the same time tries to take over heaven. You have Antichrist on earth, Satan trying to take over heaven. He is booted out, summarily dismissed. No longer has access to God. And when he is exclusively relegated to earth, Watch his posture. Great wrath, because he knows his time is short. And then he turns on the woman. And when you do a study in Scripture, you're going to know that the woman is Israel. He's going to attack Israel. And, he, and who gave birth to the male child, that would be Jesus Messiah. And the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. And when you get into the study of Revelation, you know that that place is going to be Basra, which is in Jordan, a hiding place for the Jews who realize that the abomination of desolation was their cue to exit staves left in Matthew 24. Get out of town. Don't go back for anything. Go back. Go to Basra. Go to your protected place. They know this from their Old Testament scriptures. And there, there she'll be nourished for a time and a half a time. It's going to be three and a half years protected of God's remnant who escapes there. So the serpent spewed out water out of his mouth like a flood. That's emblematic of an army. After the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood, that he might kill her. But the earth stepped in, opened its mouth, swallowed up the flood. God just destroys that army. And then what happens is this. Satan, in a fit of anger, turns on anyone who was a believer, on the rest of the offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ, Gentile and Jewish believers. He wants to eradicate all of them. It would be the worst carnage ever on planet Earth. Now, that brings us up to a question. Why does Satan hate the Jewish people so much? 
Well, it goes all the way back to this. Why has Satan sought to destroy Israel throughout history? Genesis 3.15 is the first gospel message. The first good news that a Redeemer is coming. All the way back in Genesis 3.15. Theologians call this the proto-evangelium. Big word. Big Sounds cool, doesn't it? Although, all it means is proto is first, evangelium is gospel. That's all it means. First gospel. In these verses. Listen to this as I go through this. God will put enmity, that is hostility and hatred, between you, Satan, and the woman, Israel. And between your seed, Satan, that would be, Satan's seed will be the Antichrist and those who follow Antichrist and Satan. And her seed, the woman's seed, which is Messiah, Israel's seed, Messiah, and all the followers of, of Messiah. He, Jesus, shall bruise your head. You're going to get a death blow on your head, Satan. Now, you, you will bruise his heel and cause Jesus to suffer, but he's going to kill you, and don't think Satan doesn't know that. He knows something's coming. It's going to be, it's going to be something that will be absolutely devastating to him. And as history unwound, he realized the woman was Israel, and his goal is to destroy Israel. So Satan's goal is to kill the Jews, so they cannot accomplish two requirements that have to be done for Jesus to return. Two requirements. This is the second coming, not for the rapture. The rapture is imminent. It can happen any time. But for the Jewish people, there are two requirements. Got this from Arnold Fruchtenbaum in his Footsteps of Messiah. So it came from a real smart guy, not just from me. Okay, so we can... Number one, they confess their national sin of rejecting the Messiah. Hosea 5.15 says this, I will go to my place until they acknowledge their offense. Because I've come so many times, prophet after prophet, and the nation of Israel says, no, no, we don't want you. We will take the false gods over you. Or we will take you, God, but we will also take our false gods. And God says, no, 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 he will cause you to choose. You must choose you this day whom you will serve. You cannot blend this. You cannot blend this with other false gods. The second one is that they must plead for Jesus Messiah to return. In Matthew chapter 23, we see these words, if I can find it. Well, you're going to get the Rick version. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets and kill those who are sent to you, how I long to gather you as a chick gathers you under his wings but you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They have to plead for Jesus to come back. This will occur at the end of the tribulation period. Satan, isn't that, isn't that amazing? It'll take, they will escape the Basra in the middle of it, be supernaturally protected by God, but will not come to a believing faith in Jesus Messiah until the very end of the tribulation. What an amazing thing. Seven years of misery before they finally acknowledge their sin. Satan, the Antichrist, will have their way until Jesus returns. In Daniel 7.22, judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. Now, I want to just show you something here. The Most High is El, God, Elion, Most High. God, Most High. He is the 
He is the elevated. He is the true. He is the omnipotent. He is the most high God. He is ruler. No rebellion will happen against him. He will ultimately rule. And that's what we must get into our minds when we see this world falling apart around us. We're on the right team. These things have to unfold in this way because God has orchestrated it this way. This is his plan coming to fruition. And we, by faith, walk through this tumult called earth until we're taken out of here. Do our part for the kingdom until we're taken out, taken home, either naturally or supernaturally with the rapture. Verse 23 through 28, the angel's going to give more information, another interpretation. Thus he said, now, do you think the Holy Spirit wants us to get hold of this? It's like this is multiple times he's mentioned this. The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. Nothing new. Which will be different from all the other kingdoms. Nothing new. Devour, oh, devour the whole earth. Hold that thought in your mind as we finish this. Trample it, break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. And another shall arise from them. He shall be different from the first one and shall subdue three kings. We know that. And he shall speak pompous words. Oh, but it's against the Most High. He shall persecute the saints of the Most High. He shall intend to change times and law. Oh, that's new. And the saints, the saints shall be given into his hands for a time and times and a half a time. That's three and a half years. We know that. And then this court. It's the second time this court has been mentioned. And the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion. There seems to be a heavenly council where other beings of some sort, God is in the center of it, ruling, but there are other people that are set it on, or other, whatever they are, angels or whoever, set it on this court. Just a different thought. To consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, now watch how excited he is about his vision. My thoughts greatly troubled me. It means tremble inwardly intensely. My countenance changed, and I kept the matter in my heart. When you see the next vision he gets, he's sick for days. Totally different than the way people see visions today. So, this is another recap. And again, the Holy Spirit wants us to know. Verse 23, the Antichrist rule will be global. And I had you stop there for just a, just a second. In verse 23, it says, and shall devour the whole earth. And I want to suggest to you something. Rome, this is not Rome proper. Rome did not conquer the whole earth, even the known world at their time. They were stopped in Scotland. So the Scottish were bold and stopped Rome. And then you had the Parthians who also stopped the advance. So this, is, this, this guy is going to come on the scene and be a one-world ruler. There's going to be a one-world dominion of some sort that comes in the future, which will eventually break down into ten toes or ten, ten ruling nations. So, more clarification. He has pompous words, and again, this time it's directed at the Most High. Earlier in the chapter, he just had arrogance would be seen by humans. But, oh, this is directed against the Most High. Now, the important thing to remember here, this, is Antichrist makes no pretense whatsoever. He hates God. 
He hates God, and he hates you who follow God, or Jesus' followers. He persecutes the saints, which means he wears them down. Wears them down day after day. Persecutes, persecutes, for day after day. All-out persecution, because he knows his time is short. Antichrist does two things. Now, most people don't really, really know what this means. So you're going to get my version of this, okay? So just bear with me. So Antichrist puts an end. So he changes, he changes times and laws. So again, most people don't know what this means. It could mean this. A lot of people think it's this, that he puts an end to Jewish sacrificial system. And I would say, yes, that will happen because that will happen in the middle of the tribulation period when the abomination of desolation is set up in the temple, when Antichrist, an image of him is put up there and he is to be worshipped as God. I would, say, I would say that's right. That's going to put an end to the sacrificial system for sure. But think about this. He passes laws that are contrary to believers. Hmm. How about Peter in Acts 5.29 when he was told by the Pharisees, don't teach in my name. Would it be presumptuous for us to think that a law could be passed over planet Earth that you cannot teach in the name of that old Jesus? Because he's acting like he's the new Jesus. He's the new Messiah. You could teach in my name, but not that old one, that old phony one, who was the real one. Could it be that? Just think about that. Or could it be this one? Could it be there's going to be a law that forces you to take the mark of the beast, which is a counterfeit sealing in Revelation 13, 16. Think about today. Laws have been passed counter to God, counter to believers. Abortion on demand is counter to God. It might sound great to humans, but it is counter to God. Gay marriage is a poke in God's eye. He establishes marriage, not humans. He established it. One man, one woman for life. And now, this isn't a law, but you can see the deterioration in our culture where an Islamic woman is being allowed to go into schools in Wayne County, Oakland County, Macomb County, and tell everybody about how great the Koran is and how it hasn't been contaminated like the Bible. And the schools are just embracing and opening and welcoming this. And I say, where's the church? Where's the church saying we demand equal time? Because that is, that is forcing a religion on those people, and it's a false religion. It's a false religion. Folks, things are happening right before our eyes. Take the mark of the beast. Antichrist will prevail for three and a half years. This is called the Great Tri Tribulation. His reign will be short. The court will be set, will be seated, and they shall take his dominion away. And if you ever said amen or yay or hip, hip, hooray, it would be now. It would be yay, thank you to consume and destroy it forever. The little horn is destroyed, the messianic kingdom will be established, and it will be an everlasting kingdom. There will be no more rebellion. In heaven, earth, no place. The court is seated, the books are open, and judgment is sure. Daniel's response to all of this miraculous vision is he doesn't go on tour about his vision. He doesn't try to promote himself. He's greatly troubled. He trembles intensely. I kept the matter in my heart much like Paul did when he was caught up to the third heaven 
and was given a thorn in the flesh that he would not become prideful. See, these guys don't go on tour with their vision about what happened. Now, I want you to take another journey with me. I want to compare Daniel chapter 7 with Revelation chapter 13. So if you would, turn to Revelation chapter 13. And you're going to see some amazing comparisons that are, that are very much the same. So that's why it's important that we know Daniel before we get to Revelation. So, let's compare. Verse 1, Then I stood on the sand of the sea. Have you ever heard the word sea before? Gentile nations. And I saw a beast. Now you know what a beast is. Rising up out of the sea, out of those Gentile nations. Now this is a little bit confusing, having seven heads and ten horns. We get into the book of Revelation, there's three or four pictures of what the seven heads are. Let's just picture the seven heads as those three that have been subdued. They're still going to be ruling kingdoms. They're still going to have horns. But let's just picture that for just now. We'll elaborate on that a little bit more in two years from now when we get into Revelation 13. Okay? <laughs> but we know about the ten horns and the ten crowns on his heads and blasphemous name. So we know... Then in Revelation 13, when ten horns, ten crowns, blasphemy, we have seen this in Daniel, particularly Daniel 7.24. In the second verse, we see these beasts. They're in reverse order. I saw it was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Now we know the dragon is whom? Satan. We, already, we went through this just a few minutes ago. It's Satan. Now, we, we have seen... The beast, we've seen them in order. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, this is a reverse order. And then there's something new that is added here. And I saw one of the heads as if it had been mortally wounded. Now this mortally wounded is an idiom for being killed and resurrected. Killed and resurrected. There are people that believe that Antichrist will suffer a mortal head wound, be killed, and then be resurrected. More on that in just a second. And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So he's mortally wounded, again, an idiom for resurrection. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is to make, able to make war with him? So this is the Antichrist coming to full power, to full power. And I believe, this is a personal, this is a Rickism, I believe that it is at this point that Satan himself, it's in this time frame, is kicked out of heaven and personally indwells the Antichrist. There's only two people in Scripture that, that Satan personally indwells. Judas, when he betrayed Jesus, and Antichrist at this time. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. We just read that in Daniel chapter 7, didn't we? Very similar. Then he opened his mouth and blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name. And we, we have heard that. His tabernacle on those who dwell in heaven, it was granted with him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, we have seen that in Daniel chapter 7. He'll get authority for a time. I want to suggest to you something. Satan is always trying to mimic God. And in mimicking God, he tries to mimic the Godhead. 
the Godhead. Satan tries to be, play the role of the Father. Antichrist tries to play the role of the Son, even to the point of resurrection. And the false prophet tries to, tries to play the role of the Holy Spirit, even to the point of forcing the mark or the sealing. When you get saved, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit for ownership. This mark of the beast is that false sealing, this copycat sealing that, that Antichrist will use. A false prophet will promote this. And if you don't take the mark, then you're going to die. Notice the world responds. They're head over heels in love with this guy. He makes war and he overcomes them. And then I want to share with you something else that I think is really important. Well, let me just digress for just a second. We know that in Revelation 13, 16, that if you, you have to take the mark of the beast in order to buy or sell or anything like that. Now, in Revelation 14, 9, we see an angel. So God is so gracious. In Revelation 14, he has three angels. This is actually going to happen. This isn't fantasy. Okay, this is real things that are going to happen. And the third angel does this, if, and he warns, if anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on his hand, he himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which has been poured out in full strength. This is a dire warning to planet Earth. Don't take the mark. Don't take the mark. If you do, you are cursed. You will not be savable. You have sided, you've been sealed with Satan. So that's an important thing to remember. Now, let me get back to where I was going to go. Verse 8 in Revelation 13. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, the beast. Now notice who worships him. Whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. The lamb slain from the foundations of the world simply means that the plan of salvation was put into effect in eternity past. This isn't God responding to things that are happening, go, oh no, what am I going to do? I think I'll have to send my son. Oh no, this plan was before anything come, came to fruition. It always existed in the mind and the heart of God. But I want to examine this thing called the book of life. If you would, this is a little journey, nothing to do with Daniel, but please hear this. What is the book of life. What is the book of life? What we do know about this book. Psalm 139.16 says this, The book of life contains the names of every person who ever was born according to this psalm. Your eyes see my unformed substance, and in your book they were all written, even the days that were ordained for me, when as yet they were none of them. In eternity past, God knew exactly the moment you would be born, exactly who your parents would be, exactly who you were, where you would live. This is an eternity past. You're here in this epoch of time, and not 100 years ago or 50 years ago, because God ordained it for you. He is sovereign. He is in control. Secondly, those who believe have their names retained in the book of life, according to Revelation 3.5. He that overcomes thus shall thus be arrayed in white garments, and I will in no wise blot his name out of the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. However, 
Psalm 69, 28, the unsaved have their names blotted out of the book of life. Let them be blotted out of the book of life and not be written with the righteous. Those who are not found in the book of life at the great white throne judgment are cast into the lake of fire. Now, this information was taken from Footsteps of Messiah, Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Okay? So that's where that came from. So Daniel chapter 7 and chapter 13 have many things in common. So it is very important that we understand the book of Daniel and some of these things that I've tried to really hammer on and to understand the book of Revelation. So finally, in conclusion, Daniel's visions interpreted. Let's review where we should all be right now, class. All of us should be on the same page. We should have a clear understanding of the time of the Gentiles. Remember, the time of the Gentiles is Babylonian captivity until the second coming of Christ. We are living in the time of the Gentiles right now. It's a time when God judges his people. It's a period of time where four major empires come to power. We know that we're living in that time, which is Rome. But I want you to also know that God still has a love for his people, the nation of Israel. And he will resume when we are taking out of here. See, his focus now, we're in, the, we're in the age of grace. This is the church age. We'll be extracted from here with the rapture. And then his focus during the tribulation period is winning the people back, the nation of Israel back to him. And it will take all of that mess of the tribulation for the nation of Israel to turn. This concludes our section that was written in Aramaic. Chapter 246 through 728 had to deal with the Gentile nations, and it was written in Aramaic. The rest of Daniel deals with the nation of Israel specifically. It'll be written in Hebrew. So Daniel's visions are interpreted so that through all of the epochs of time, believers can study and know what is coming. Know what is coming. Don't trust the newspaper. Don't trust the news that... It isn't even news that you see anymore. It's commentators. Commentators with a political bent. Don't trust any of it. 28% of the Bible is prophecy. It's predictive. And many prophecies have come to fruition exactly as prophesied. Hundreds of years later, exactly. No other holy book, no other religion has one. The Bible, Christianity, has literally hundreds of these. It separates us by miles, miles. The truth is the Lord Jesus and the Word of God, and the false are all other ways to God. It's just that simple. Based on this, we can know what is in the future, what has been predicted for the future, will happen just like the Bible said it would in our time. Listen to this. In our time. Now, it might not be your time, but my time, okay? And even a little bit before. The Jews were in the land on May 14, 1948. Miracle of miracles. No one can explain this, how someone can be in, in the dispersion, the diaspora, spread throughout the whole world for 2,000 years and then regain their homeland. No one can explain that. And they go there in unbelief. That's, and that's where they are now, in unbelief. There will be a second regathering in the millennial reign in belief. Secondly, you are living in the time of what's called the apostasy of the church, where the people are falling away 
from the true teachings of Scripture. It is happening all over the place. All over. You are living in a time where there's a national alignment of nations described in Ezekiel 38. We now have Russia, Iran, Turkey as the main players falling in line as those who will one day attack Israel. This is happening right before our eyes. We are seeing an increase in famines, pestilence, and earthquakes. Now let me ask you a question. We hear a lot about climate change, don't we? Man-made climate change. Now in order to have a famine, what do you have to have? A drought, a drought. So I would suggest to you, maybe there is some climate change, but it is not man-made climate change. Who's in charge? God's in charge. God's in charge. And then there's going to be the wars and rumors of wars, and you always hear this, oh, it's always been through history. Never, never, never in the history of humanity have we known that there was a war in some little pipsqueak country someplace, and that minute, it's boom, right before TV. Right on TV. Oh, they're, ri they're riding in some little island someplace. There's a war there. We're inundated with this information all the time. It's technology. It's now. This is our age. Folks, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the second coming of Christ. This thing is unraveling. The depravity is increasing. Look around at man's inhumanity to man. Look around at the number of murders in our cities. Look at what's happening in our schools where we have to have weapon detectors to go into schools. The depravity is increasing. Man's inhumanity to man is increasing. You are living in a time that all things are coming to a head. And you, the church, the true church, must have eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. At the end of chapters 1 through 3, he goes through all of those churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. At the end of each one of those, chapters 1 through 3, he says, have eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. That's what he says to us today. And I would say to you, and hopefully you can just have this just, just resonate within us, Maranatha, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Establish your kingdom, Lord. Make this thing right. Maranatha, Jesus is going to come and establish his kingdom. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time. Thank you for your plan that has been put into place in eternity past. Thank you that the nations are aligned. The world is ready. The depravity has increased. And Lord, your church is anxiously awaiting, hopefully awaiting, your return. When you take us home, that we'll be in a real place. That we'll be with you forever. Where everything will be made right. No more sickness, no more illness, no more death, no more degrading, belittling, whatever happens with humans. We'll be right before you because we, when we see you, we will be like you because we'll see you as you are. Thank you for the blessed hope that you've given each one of us. May no one in this room tremble because of what they see on the TV or what they see in the in, in, in the world around us. But may we have our feet 
firmly anchored in you and your word, Lord. And we trust you. We trust you to take us through this. And we trust you to get us home safely. That is your promise. We look forward to being with you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.